As you can see this morning, I want to talk with you about speaking the present truth, the present truth. One of the ideas from this sermon, or at least some of the core thoughts, are not mine originally, as you'll see. In fact, some of them came from an article by a fellow named Aaron Wren, R-E-N-N. Most of you have never heard of Aaron Wren. He is kind of a, a scholar, uh, uh, writes various articles on politics and social events and religion. Very interesting fellow. I don't agree with everything he says, but he has some very good observations that are not always just parroting what other people are saying. They're generally unique, and I appreciate him for that. But anyway, that's his name, Aaron Wren. So some of, you can probably look some of these things up. There's nothing new here. But I want to start with you, before we get into the subject matter, uh, what in the world do you mean? I've always heard this expression, the present truth, growing up. In fact, if you look it up on the Internet, you'll find that this phrase, the present truth, is almost exclusively used by millennial prophets, people that are trying to predict the future. That's there in the name of their magazines and YouTube videos and websites for some reason, because they're trying to say that the events of today were predicted in the Bible in America. Exactly like's happening around the world, this was all predicted in the Bible and various prophets. And that's how they use this phrase, present truth. I don't think that's what it means in the Bible at all. In fact, where, where you find this is over in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, which is right after the verses we've been studying in our Sunday evening devotionals at my home, those who've been coming about add to your faith, diligence, and your diligence, and virtue, and all those things. Right after that, Peter mentions the fact that he's going to die soon, he thinks, and so he wants to remind him of some important things in his epistles. He says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, things I'm going to talk about, though you know and are established in the present truth. He says, you know these things, you're living them. The word present truth here means that something that they knew and were living and were experiencing it then, that they weren't just academic exercises. It wasn't something that they had read about and it wasn't really applying to them. He says, these things are real to you. That's why it's the present truth. So I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent, his body, to stir you up by reminding you of certain things. And I would use this uh, in this way, applying what is around us. There is a uh, this fellow, Aaron Wren, wrote an article about uh, preaching what you practice. Not practicing what you preach, but preaching what you practice. He says a lot of successful people practice one thing, but they preach something else to the mass of other people around them. And he, he gives them several examples, among them Tim Keller, whose wife was a real radical, he's a preacher from New York City, uh, denominational preacher, it was very popular, and his wife uh, was a radical feminist when she was before she married him, and is teaching women, you know, to go out and have a career and do all these things. And of course, she hasn't lived that way at all. Not to be subservient to a man, she hasn't lived that way at all. She's lived as his wife, and actually underneath him, as it were, as far as his presentation. She's helped him a lot. Well, that makes sense because that's exactly what her job would be as a wife to enhance him, and then in, in turn, her be well-known, which is what's happened. But she hasn't practiced what she's preached to other young women about making sure you put your career first, don't be obedient to any man, go out and be independent. She hasn't lived that in her own life. Her life's been a great success. Some of the women that she's preached this to, though, their lives have not been so successful or so happy. She He mentions Hillary Clinton, a radical feminist also, 
who spent her life not as an independent woman, not out blazing a trail, but she immediately latched on to an up-and-coming young uh, politician, Bill Clinton, and lawyer, and wrote his coattails to the White House, helping him along the way, which, as a good wife, she should. And then her other successes since then have all been based upon the reputation she built as the subservient wife and stand-by-your-man woman that she's been. So she does not practice... She does not practice what she preaches, as it were, herself. And he says, it's a shame some of these people like that in their homes, both religious and non-religious, don't, don't practice what they preach to other people. They don't. They do something different. And so it is in some churches, he says. We talk a lot about what the Bible says about this issue and that marriage and so forth and different sexual sins, but in the end, we ourselves don't do what we say we're going to do about that. And I'm just going to, here's some, here's, I'm going to list some of the things this fellow mentioned that I want to talk with you about two or three of these this morning. I think there's ten of these. So just, you know, brace yourself. We're not going to deal with all ten today. We, we might, we might deal with, you know, 17 for all I know, but no, we're going to deal with a couple of these today. He says, he says the vast majority, here are things that are true that in churches today, Christians and preachers are afraid to say. Maybe not here, but they're afraid to say these things. The vast majority of people are not called to be cel- to the celibate life and thus should be married. Marriage is the normal pat- normative pattern. You just can't say that today because you're insulting, degrading anybody who's not married to say that marriage is the normal state of man. We're coming back to that. Marriage is the best place to raise children. You can't say that. Because lots of people are raising children today without being married, so you can't say anything about that. But marriage actually is the best place to raise children, and single motherhood is inferior in almost every case. That's sociologically true, as well as every other way. And all the wailing about it doesn't change that, that fact. Christians should not be ashamed of this thing. Some people, uh, people need to treat marriage like finding a job. You have to prepare yourself for it as, as best you can and aggressively pursue it sooner rather than later. It doesn't just fall out of the sky in your head like a meteorite. He's talking here about young women being told that your career is the number one thing you should be pursuing. Your education, your career, that's the most important thing that you will ever do is pursue a career. And then maybe someday marriage will just happen to you. And they talk about this way. Well, marriage just happened to her. Marriage just happened to you. They think that somehow marriage just happened for me. By the way, tomorrow's our 48th anniversary if she lets me live that long considering how things have been going. But anyway, 48 years. So they think somehow that just happened. You're just so lucky. We were young, but it didn't happen by accident. It happened because we had been taught and believed and practiced a pursuit of that goal in life, a stable, long-term marriage with one person based on we were young, but we tried to pursue that as best we could from an early age. Doesn't happen. And so the idea that we, you can just put all your energy and attention to having a career and somehow you're going to find a mate that you can live with and everything's going to work out for you just in time to have a big family and spend all that money you're making. It's not work, it's not working out for a lot of people. Okay? A lot, a lot, a lot of people. Okay. And so people shouldn't engage, he says, here's another thing. People should not engage in premarital sex or cohabitate prior to marriage. We shouldn't be ashamed to say this. Now, we're not ashamed to say this from this pulpit, but I'm afraid we might be in our private lives. 
people should not do this, and there are moral as well as social reasons not to do that, as we'll see. Relationships are best if they're hypergamous. Ooh, big, I love to throw in big words so you think I'm smart. What that means is women generally marry up. Women do not marry men that they do not think are higher than, than them in social or physical status. They marry, they tend to marry more dominant men. That's who they want. Now, their perceptions might differ from individual to individual, but they always, always want to marry someone who is smarter or they think is smarter, who is more aggressive, someone who is take, can take charge, someone who will actually be a man. That's who they want. But they don't talk that game because we're all equal and sometimes it's better for the woman to be in charge. Sometimes women are smarter. We, we go through all that stuff. In the end, who do women marry? They marry men who are they, who they think are higher than them slightly and that's what works out better. Higher status. Different cultures have different markers for this status. Sometimes it's, you know, driving around a challenger and other times it's being a debate champion. It just depends on the woman. <laughs> But uh, do you drive a challenger gear and I get that wrong? You, 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 yeah, okay. No, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. That's Sharon's problem. But <laughs> and there's but how well has it worked out for her to have a debate champion for us? That's worked out well a lot of the times. Yeah, uh, you know. The, so it, it all you get, you know, you get what you get. But people have different opinions, and there's there's room for that. But in the end, this is why people choose the people that they choose and why they're happy with the people that they choose as often as not. So, women do not marry down if they can help it. Traditional sex, and that's the problem, we're getting ahead of ourselves, that's the problem that when your mom and daddy and everybody else around you tells you, young women, you need to get, you need to make sure that you get your PhD and become the, the chief, the head of the boss lady. You want to be the boss lady of the corporation. You want to be at the top of your, the pinnacle of your career and then find a husband. Well, that only leaves you a small little bump against the ceiling choice of men at that point in time. Cause you're not going to be happy marrying the janitor down there. That might happen in a Disney movie, but it doesn't happen in real life. Okay, it might happen because the people at Disney want you to think that that's what you should do and how you should live your life, but that's not how real people actually experience it. And that's the problem with not living and teaching young people what's really there, what successful people know already. Traditional role divisions, sexual divisions, work best for most people. Not an absolute form, but he says best if the focus is on the husband's career and on the wife more focused on child rearing, best if the husband is generally the leader. That's Why is that? Well, that's because women want to marry up. It fits exactly with that whole thing that we see in natural selection across cultures that women want to marry up. It fits if the husband is the one who is the one who's being emphasized as far as headship or the role or the job or whatever. That's what works best. That's what all a lot of liberal feminists have done in their own life. They just don't tell people on the bottom that story because they got to keep the narrative going. We in the church should not be afraid to say what the Bible says about those subjects. It won't tell you exactly what you should do and doesn't it doesn't condemn other things, but there's a truth there that should not be ignored. So another thing, a large majority of women want to have children and will be grieved and distressed if they are unable to do so. We see this in the stories we're reading in Genesis. You know, those old people living with a bunch of shepherds out there in the wilderness, those old-fashioned, ignorant people in the Bible. 
those women were greatly distressed when they couldn't bear children. And I can tell you today that probably almost every woman who finds out that she cannot bear children is deeply grieved by that because it's built into her nature. I know that's not politically correct to talk about women having a nature, but they do. That's different than male natures, male nature. And so most women are going to be grieved. Now, some people can choose that. I'm not saying you can't choose that. But I am saying it's going to take a special set of circumstances to make that really work. And he says, stay monogamous within marriage. The idea that here's a woman. He gives <laughs> a woman wrote an article defending open marriage in the New York Times recently. She's defending open marriage, that people should be open to the idea of having different sexual partners and male and female friendships, close friendships in their marriage. That should all be okay with everybody. And we should, and, and, and when she, then when, then she writes about, the woman who wrote that article was writing another article in which she talked about having lunch with a fellow that she met at a conference one time where she was staying and she liked what he was talking about because he showed that he was superior to her in his thought process. You know, there's that problem. So she wants to have dinner with him and she does and she feels totally guilt stricken. First thing she has to do is tell her husband that, that she had dinner with a man and all this kind of stuff. In other words, exactly the opposite of the advice she's giving everybody else about open marriage right. in her own life. She has a long, successful marriage and she knows that by having supper with this man and enjoying it, who's not a, without telling, and if she didn't tell her husband, that would be a betrayal. She knows this in her own life, but she won't tell all the young women read the New York Times that. In a church, we should be, you know, how much ridicule Mike Pence got because he said, following Billy Graham's advice, I don't have dinner with women who aren't my wife or husband. She had hit all these rules. He got not only ridiculed, but he got accused of all kinds of terrible crimes, of abuse, all kinds of terrible crimes. You can agree or disagree with some particular rules, but you need to understand that that's a very real thing. Okay. If, if I check off on my phone a Facebook friend request, I know that makes me old, but yes, I still have Facebook and, and, uh, all that. But if I click off a friend request, I won't do it. A lot of these young girls in around the state or country in 4-H and other programs, youth poultry, they're always asking to be my friend on Facebook. Do you think that's appropriate? I don't think so. And I don't accept them, those friend requests. Not because I don't like those young ladies. I, re I like them a lot and respect them, but that's not a pro Nor do I, ex if I accept the friend request of another woman who's not my wife, I usually run that by Judy first. Most all the time, run that by her first, and we talk about that. How do you know? Do you know her? Who it is? Do you understand who they are? To, uh, and, and we talk about that. Not because she's a tyrant. Not because I'm afraid. Oh, I'm gonna. Uh, that's being disrespect. I know. I understand all that. It's not a disrespect to Judy. It's actually respectful to her and myself and the other woman involved, young lady involved. So let's look at a few. Divorce, he says, do not divorce in almost every case. Are you permitted to divorce in the Bible? Yes, you are. You're permitted to divorce for the cause of fornication. And that's permissible. And sometimes it should be done. But when you divorce, even when it should be done, you run a risk. It usually doesn't turn out the way you think it will. 
and usually is worse than you think it's going to be. The long-term consequences are. Now, we live in a society where most Christian churches, divorce is rampant and acceptable for whatever reason. We should accept people who are divorced for scriptural reasons and for those who regret what they've done and so forth. We should accept that without condemnation. But the idea that divorce is somehow a good thing has permeated our culture and the thinking of our young people, and it shouldn't be that way. You may find yourself divorced even against your will. Don't normalize that for everybody. Don't try to make that normal or good. A lot of things can happen to you that are not good, and you should you should accept that for what it is. It's not always good, but divorce. People who are divorced in a few years usually regret that. Even when they divorce for the sake of adultery, they wish they could go back and repair what was there before. And in fact, couples who try to fix their marriages, in, even in the case of adultery, usually are successful and have a better marriage afterwards. I know that's not what you hear. You may have a friend who has a different story, but that's what the facts say as far as what we know about these things. So let's look at what the Bible says. The Bible says it's not good that man should be alone. Genesis 2. Here's what God sees about people. It's not good that man should be alone. Should we be ashamed to preach that? That God designed human beings, male and female, two separate entities, although they're the same, they're also separate. He designed them for each other, and he didn't design human beings to be alone. In our culture of radical individualism, and you know what an individualist I am, except there's a radical kind of individualism that doesn't need anybody else and says, I get to do whatever. What we're experiencing today is just radical individualism. I get to do whatever I want. My desires, my thoughts are the only thing that matters. And you're going to have to accept me as I am and like it. You're not only going to have to accept it, you're going to have to like it and applaud me and celebrate me for being who I am. This is radical individualism. That's what we're experiencing. That's not what this verse says about the, make, the nature of human beings. We may think in the 21st century that we can be that way, but God says it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper for, comparable to him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. This tells us something about not only man, but also the animals. They are not humans. They are not suitable companions in the ultimate sense, even though we all like them. They're not made to give you the same thing that humans do. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. So all these animals... Well, not, you realize that I think the country of Spain this week basically permitted bestiality to be an easily done thing and acceptable in that society. Bestiality, sex with animals. Uh, it used to, and all they say is, as long as a veterinary visit isn't required by the animal, no problem. This is where we are in Western civilization. Did God intend that for here? What does this story say? It doesn't directly use the word bestiality, but that's what it's saying. There's no companions among the animals for you. And I don't, you know, there's nobody here that loves animals more than me. I don't have a problem making that statement because I've been a lover of animals ever since I was a little boy. Every kind of animal. I even had a horned toad as a pet before. 
nurse woodpeckers, I, every animal you can think of, I've had as a pet at one time, and and love them all. And I work with it. I've been missing from you for two weeks because of animals. So don't give me this you just hate animals thing. No, animals have their place, and they have a place that God gave them in society, and that should be in your heart. They're not going to take the place of people. They're not my children. I love them. I'm going to take care of them. I'm not going to be cruel to them, like the Bible says. But they're not my children. They're not my grandchildren. They're animals. They have a use and a purpose. As we keep that biblical worldview, things will work a lot better. But now we don't have that in any view anymore. Why do we think that way? Because we've destroyed our other families, partly. One of the reasons why people love the animals is because they've destroyed their other family. That's my theory. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But we need to be careful about these things that come along that are and not at least think about why is this happening why is it like that there's a reason for it and i wouldn't be surprised that a whole bunch of other countries begin to to normalize to normalize uh bestiality wouldn't surprise me in the least it was a common feature of pagan society in the ancient world that's why god expressly condemned it in the old testament because it was a common feature of all the peoples around israel so God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and then the rib which God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, the man with a womb, or womb man, because she was taken from man. In Hebrew, it's as I mentioned before, it's, man is ish, woman is isha. They're the same word, only a little bit different. They're the same thing, only com- companions of each other. So there, in the Bible, there's not a great difference between man and woman, especially as far as how they're to be treated. But there is a difference to be maintained. Therefore, God says, a man shall leave his father and his mother. This is the nuclear family. That's what we call it today. The nuclear family. Where God says a man leaves his father and mother, even though he stays attached to his father's house and her to her father's house and how they live. But they leave their father and mother and be joined to his wife. That's What's happening? People are looking around. So some kind of, huh? Noise. Oh, you wouldn't expect me to hear a noise, would you? I'm hearing noise right now, but it's just the ringing and vibrating and everything in my ears. So, is it something I should be concerned about? This noise. Okay. Man should be joined to his wife. That's who his where his concern should be. There's a. A movement called Men Going Their Own Way. M-G-T-O-W. Men, and it's a reaction to radical feminism. But like a lot of other reactionary movements, it has its great flaws. It's basically the idea of women treat us so horribly and they're so concerned about themselves that they're simply undateable and unmarriageable and we'll just go our own way. And that's what a lot of men are doing. And this is why when you're waiting to find a husband... And beating him up about feminism, you're going to run into more and more men who are going their own way. How's that going to work out, though? Is that going to lead to happiness to these from these men? Not long-term happiness. They're going to die alone. They're going to die alone without anyone to care and love about them. And that's a sad thing to contemplate. We see it more and more, even in Fort St. Lucie, here where we are. We see this phenomenon around us. Men, older men alone. Their family doesn't care for them anymore. Maybe deserved, maybe undeserved. A lot of men I see alone are, don't deserve the life that they're living. They've been forced into that by the court system. 
and by women in general. It's a shame. Others probably deserve to be isolated because they behave so poorly. But this says men should be joined to a wife and they should take care of her and be that should be their focus. Not going their own way, not having their own career at the expense of their family, but they should be joined to their wife and so forth. So marriage is the natural state of mankind. I don't have any problem making that statement or you shouldn't have it either. That does not negate the fact... Well, let me go back here. I did something wrong. I don't know what's showing. Oh, there it's coming on there. Singleness is permissible. It's not immoral. And it's often desirable, especially if you don't have a right to marry or you haven't haven't married someone. You have no right just to join up and cohabitate and have a partner. But it's not the standard. Singleness is not the standard for human beings. It's permissible. It's not a sin. It's fine. Marriage was designed for human flourishing. That's what marriage was designed for. It was designed when God saw human in the beginning. It was not good that man should be alone. And Adam would not flourish. He would not flourish to reach his potential without a mate. And so a woman was created for that purpose. It's a good thing. We've made it into a bad thing. It's a good thing. Marriage was designed to exhibit God's nature and the relation of Christ to the church. When you read Ephesians chapter 5 about the, two, the male and the female, he's really talking, he says, about this great mystery of Christ and the church and the bride of Christ. And so this idea of Christ, Christ's nature and our marriage to a wife or a husband and its relation to our connection to Jesus Christ as God's son and the bride and the bridegroom. All that was done on purpose. God already was like this and he showed man, made man's likeness this way. He made man this way on purpose to reflect his own nature and desire for oneness. Now, there are several Bible verses. Our time is going to get away before we get too much to this, but there's several Bible verses about singleness I don't have time this morning to go into great detail. Maybe we can do another lesson. But but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. He's giving the opinion of an apostle, which is, of course, binding upon us as apostles of Christ, as disciples of Christ. I suppose, therefore, what he's trying to do here in the way he's expressed this is get these Corinthians on board. They were stubborn, they were worldly, and he's trying to get them understand what's the basis of this here. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if, and so forth. Now, I didn't put the rest of that verse on there, but... The point is, he's saying, the reason that this is important right now, because you're about to undergo persecution, the present distress. You're about to undergo persecution. Is it good to have a wife when you're being persecuted? Probably not. You know, you could do a lot of things to me, and that's probably true for you. You could do a lot of things to me, or I would not be that tempted to deny my faith in Christ. Now you say, well, I think we'll torture your wife and see what you change your mind. I think we'll torture your children and grandchildren. Then we'll see if you'll still keep this same faith in Christ. Now that changes the equation. It does for me. It's going to be much harder for me to watch her be tortured just so I can maintain my dignity. And that's his point about this. So 
if you're got if you're single at this present time, he says, maybe it's good to stay single. And if you're married, then do the best you can. And he goes, but but overall, Paul is clear about whether men should be married and, and whether that's the normal state of mankind. He's very clear about that. On the other hand, he isn't advising you just marry for the sake of marrying per se, but he is saying that it's important to do. Now, he also noticed this in 1 Timothy 5, Paul again. And speaking about all the widows, I can't go through that whole context. We simply don't have time this morning. But refuse, he says, the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Their first faith being, I'm going to stay single the rest of my life. Become a widow. I'm going to stay single the rest of my life and just serve the Lord. I don't ever want to marry again. When they're younger, he says, that doesn't last that long because then they desire to marry. And now they have to break the pledge that they just made. So be careful about making that pledge. He goes on to say, besides that, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house because they have no husband to care for. They do the female thing of wandering around, talking and so forth, and become gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. What does he say? I desire, therefore, that younger widows marry. Go back to the natural state. You need to be married if you're a younger widow. Bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity for the adversary to speak proportionally. This is what women were designed to do. That's what he's saying. They need to go back and do that. Now they give, he makes comment here about older widows who can be in a different state and there's nothing wrong. In fact, that's a good thing. Oftentimes that they remain single because of the work that they can do for the Lord. There's a difference Paul makes between the two because of their life situation. Now, so singleness can be a good thing if unmarried because you can devote yourself directly to the Lord. Singleness can be destructive if you are consumed by passion. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9 said that warns people essentially that it's better to marry than to burn with passion, to burn. That's another mistake we make, I don't know if I got here or not, with our children. It's coming up here. Maybe I get ahead of myself just for a moment. We make a big mistake with our children in modern culture. And here they mature sexually, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. They're mature sexually. And maybe they peak even before age 25 in, in their sexual desire and their desire to be mate, to be a mate with someone. See, sexual desire is a God-given expression of desire to find a mate. It isn't bad. It's not a separate thing. It's got what, the, what God put in you to get you to seek a mate. So you can live with someone and have relation with them. It's an it's a, a an impulse to do that, not impulse. It's a what's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, it's designed to get you to to desire that. That's how I viewed it when I was a young man, and I think I was correct in doing so because I was had been taught that that this is an indication that you are need to find a mate. You don't just go out and just spread your seed abroad. He says in Proverbs. But you focus on finding someone that you can live with and be a mate. And he says, if you're in that situation, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. What we teach our kids, oh, no, 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 don't, don't get married. Oh, no, don't do that. Get your education. Once you get an education, get yourself a master's degree or a PhD, then write a book and then advance in your career to at least a partner in the corporation or have your business. You make sure, and then, oh, wait, no, don't do it now. No, wait. Get a house has to be a good house. Now then, after you do all that, and you're about 35, then seek a wife. Now, in the meantime, these Christian kids have been told that. 
are committing fornication either privately or openly all that time. Good or bad? It's terrible. It ruins their lives oftentimes. It hinders them from finding a mate. It helps them to end up finding the wrong kind of mate for the wrong reasons. Because the truth is, it's better to marry than to burn. You can get married young and then still go to school, still find a job, still get a house. You can even have children and do that if you want to do it. If you just want to follow the normal pattern that society's laid out, then Christian families are inviting disaster into their lives by doing this, in my opinion. Oftentimes, work out that way every case? No, it doesn't, but it does oftentimes. So marriage is good because man was created not to be alone, and marriage can be bad because people live as if they're alone. You know, you have some marriages where people are to marry, but they're still living as if they're alone. I've had friends that, you know, they can understand why Mike just can't go do that today because I want to do that. They want me to do something, play golf or whatever it was, and I can't just go do that. i got to talk to Judy about that. They get frustrated. So, well, aren't you the boss? I am the boss, but I have a wife who's also with me, and I'm not just going to go do whatever I want today or any day because it's going to impact her, and I need to know about that. She doesn't tell me what to do. I don't tell her what to do. We're a team. We work together. But I owe it to her, if I'm married to her, to consider her before I act on anything. Does that sound uh, crazy? That's just what you do when you're a partnership, when you work together and so forth. But when you are living, what happens in marriage today, you are married, but you're living as if you're alone. You see who you want to see, whichever sex, you go do what you want to do with them. You talk talk to who you want to. You have sex with yourself or whoever else do when you want to, as if you're alone. doesn't work that way well. So pointing people, we're going to close up here, pointing people toward marriage and emphasizing how to live in marriage is not idolatry. I see more and more Christian blog posts about the idolatry of marriage and the family. That modern churches are, have made the family and marriage an idol that we worship. I don't believe that that's the case. I think that's emphasizing the wrong end of the stick. It is possible to make anything an idol, I suppose. But teaching young people how to have, in this culture, teaching the young people of a church how to have successful marriages and live in those marriages and do the right thing by their spouse is not a form of idolatry. Now, if we were insulting single people, that'd be different. Now, and that can be done, I suppose. Some people are single and would like to be married, but they've been frustrated in life by that. And we need to affirm that that's the case and, and, and um, share the hurt that they have for that fact, and that's the way it ought to be. And I think that we try to do that here by friendship. Some people should not or do not want to be married. And they shouldn't be married because they have no right to marry or they're just not the right kind of person to marry somebody else. And I've told young women directly more than once, do not marry that man. Do not marry him. Whatever you do, he will does not, he will not be a good husband to you. He will mistreat you. You will always be miserable. Did they listen to me? You know the answer. They were in love. God told them to marry this person. They got a message from the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it was. But, no. They may not, that may not be sinful. 
to stay single because in your situation with your your personality, everything about you, maybe that's the right thing to do. But it's not a reason. My point today is, even though that's right, that's not a reason. Your personal circumstances aren't the reason to downplay what God has made prominent. God has made marriage and, and the right kind of home a prominent thing in his word, and we shouldn't downplay it because of our personal circumstances. Nor should we make our personal circumstances the only thing that's really right. All right, thank you for listening today. Got a bunch more of these, but I just want to, I just want to emphasize with you that it doesn't do society or anyone else, and especially young people, any good to alter what the Bible is saying because of your circumstances and so forth, or my circumstances, or what society in general is saying. Society and the intellectuals of our society do not have your best interest at heart because they reject God's word. That's the only people you can actually trust to have your best interest at heart. People that respect God's word and are even in in a flawed way trying to follow it. Those are the people that you should trust as having your best interest at heart, not the intellectuals and elites of our society because they contradict his word. We're going to sing now as we close our service, number 61. Thank you for listening. And we close our service with this invitation to obey the gospel of Christ. If you have never been baptized into Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, we can do that this morning. You'll have to, you'll have to be willing to turn away from sinful lifestyle. You'll have to be willing to repent of that. You have to be willing to confess Jesus' name before this audience and say that you believe he's God's son. But based upon that, then we can baptize you into Christ. You can begin to live a new life right now, today. Can we help you with that? Come right here to the front this morning as we stand and sing.